Hi there, everyone. Uh, very warm welcome to you all. My name is Brendan Johnson, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to the Duke Theology, Medicine, and Culture uh, Spring Seminar Series, which is happening every other week throughout the academic year. The Duke TMC initiative exists to engage contemporary practices of healthcare in light of the Christian tradition and communities. And we are very glad that you're here today uh, for this event. So um, once again, my name is Brendan Johnson and I'm a second year TMC fellow and medical student at the University of Minnesota. I'll briefly go over the technical details before we begin. As usual, please mute your audio and turn off your video camera during the presentation. And when the question and answer period comes up, uh, you can participate and raise your hand in the uh, participants tab. You can click on that and then raise your hand. Um, and also, if you have any technical questions, please private message me at any time. In terms of the CME code, it is on the screen and you can just text this to the number on the screen. I'll leave this up for one moment. And this code will also be going out in about 10 minutes again in the chat. Wonderful. Well, at this time, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Farah Curlin, co-director of the Theology and Medicine Culture Program. Thank you all for coming today. Indeed, thank you all for joining us this afternoon. We, uh, as Brendan said, would love to have you study with us. If you're interested in digging deeper into the intersections of theology and medicine, please um, encourage friends who might might uh, benefit from our new distance uh, hybrid program that's open this fall to, to check that out online. One of the things we do at TMC, of course, is scholarship. And uh, we always have a series of projects ongoing to try to dig deep into theological questions that attend the practice of medicine and the experience of illness. And um, organizing that in the past few years has been a series sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation uh, on the theological questions raised by the prescription of pharmaceuticals, uh, the writing of prescriptions and the taking of drugs to respond to different aspects of the human predicament. And this year, we've been focusing on the management of risk. Um, common wisdom holds that today's medicine focuses too much on treating people when they're already sick and not enough on preventing an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We all know that. And the field of preventive medicine offers many strategies for reducing the risk of future bad events, what, what uh, people in medicine call adverse events, things like heart attacks and strokes and cancers of all sorts, uh, even broken bones from, from a frailty of the bones. But when is it fitting for Christians to make use of such strategies, particularly in light of the biblical witness that God cares for us. Today, we're delighted to have two scholars of the Bible to help us consider these questions. Brad Gregory is Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Catholic University, and Kevin Rowe is George Washington Ivy Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Associate Dean of the Faculty here at Duke Divinity School. I'm going to interview Brad and Kevin, and then we'll leave some time at the end for you guys to ask questions 
um, we'll, we'll come to that. So Brad and Kevin, welcome, both of you. Um, um, first question to you two is, how is a two plus thousand year old biblical literature relevant to questions about 21st century scientific medicine? I'll start with you, Brad. Okay. Um, well, I think the I think the first thing to keep in mind is that as we approach medicine, I think we make a mistake if we think of it as simply a technology that's value neutral. Um, and all medical approaches and medical decisions need to take place within a framework of larger values and assumptions about the meaning and purposes of, of human life. And I think uh, scripture can really help us think through what a Christian framework would look like and provide a grammar for thinking through these issues, even if it doesn't provide kind of straightforward answers. And in doing that, it can also help us to identify and question some assumptions that uh, maybe go unstated in the current practice of medicine. Kevin, what would you add to that? Um, well, first, let me just say uh, thanks for inviting us far uh, and um, thank you to the rest of you for coming. We're delighted that you, you could be here um, and to be with you. Um, I mean, I, I would say a few things. I agree with everything that Brad just said. Uh, for Christians to reason Christianly uh, means that we will be reasoning with scripture. And so in some sense, the, the question uh, involves a kind of tautology as its answer. I mean, if you want to reason Christianly, you're going to be employing scriptural reasoning. Um, but I, I think there's a trick there, which is that what we typically do is think of, um, you know, we've got medicine over here and the Bible over there, and how do we take our questions over here and go find the answers to them, or maybe not great answers, but some answers to them in the Bible. Uh, as if we could extract from scripture a kind of a list of answers that would go with our given questions. And um, the way that uh, scripture works in, in terms of its ability to shape our understanding of medical or any other kinds of questions is not so much like that as it is to work on us and to form us into a people who can uh, achieve a kind of wisdom uh, with respect to the questions that we need to ask, uh, and 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 uh, to which we hope to find some answers. So, uh, I think part of our basic task in reading Scripture in relation to the sort of stuff you're wanting to talk about in TMC is is really exposing ourselves to Scripture so that we can become the kind of wise people we need to become. Uh, to deal with the kinds of complex questions uh, that are on uh, the table for medical practitioners and healthcare practitioners of all kinds uh, all the time. So speaking of exposing ourselves to scripture, uh, Brad, you, you study uh, particularly the Old Testament scriptures and, and you study the wisdom literature within the Old Testament. This is literature that Jesus would have been raised on, um, informed uh, on throughout his life. What what does that literature offer us, I guess, uh, to pick up on what Kevin said in, in shaping us to be able to make wise use of medical technology in our time? Yeah, and maybe if I could just pick up on uh, an important point that Kevin made there, um, which is that it, it provides kind of frameworks for thinking, um, but it doesn't provide usually straightforward answers. Um, 
And that's not because it's being coy or evasive. It's because the wisdom literature recognizes that life is, is complicated and messy. Um, and decisions are not like dominoes or, or Rube Goldberg machines where if you set it up the correct way, then you know a, an outcome is assured. So while we might prefer to have kind of a flow chart um, where you open up the book of Proverbs and you go through a series of questions and then you arrive at the right answer, um, it tends to focus more on constructing a world that can shape you so that in whatever situation you're in, whatever medical decision you're confronted with, um, you're likely to be able to navigate that well, rather than just, uh, as Kevin said, extract an answer. Um, and, and you can see that the sages were aware of this uh, as well. For example, a classic case is in Proverbs 26, and there you have back-to-back -back verses. And one of them says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, right? And, and the whole point there is that Proverbs doesn't tell you when to do one and when to do the other. You're kind of confronted with diversity of wisdom that in some contexts makes sense. And in other contexts, you might have to do something else. But what you can't do is just flip open a wisdom text, put your finger down and say, this is always applicable in the same way in every context. Um, and that's true of the whole canon as well. I mean, you have different wisdom books who approach the task of living well and making good decisions in different ways. Um, a, a helpful way to think about that diversity I found is um, Michael Legospi has, has written that you can kind of, in, in, in a broad sense, put wisdom in, into two basic approaches. So one he calls the lucid approach. This is a, a, an approach to wisdom that sees the world as, as more or less comprehensible and, and therefore virtue and discernment uh, tend, all things being equal, tend to pay off. Um, and so texts that follow this tend to, to put a high emphasis on thinking through the various factors well and so forth. Uh, Proverbs is a good example, but Legaspi puts, for example, Genesis 1 in that camp too, where the world is kind of an orderly place that makes sense and so forth. Uh, but then you have another approach to wisdom, which Legaspi calls opaque wisdom. Um, and in this approach, there's more of an emphasis on the uncertainty and the contingencies and the unexpected things that can happen in life. And so what is emphasized in these texts is, is really the importance of personal integrity. Um, and, and with that goes uh, a resistance to feel entitled to a certain outcome, right? So we can think, if I do this, I should get this, and if I don't, I've been cheated, right? Um, texts that would fall into this category would be like Job or Ecclesiastes, or, or even the Adam and Eve story, which is almost a paradigmatic case of uh, people who think they're going to get one thing, and they end up getting something very different because they, they didn't anticipate uh, one of the consequences. Um, so, in the biblical corpus, you know, you have kind of a, a spectrum here between opaque and, and lucid, and texts fall kind of on this spectrum, but the biblical authors generally reject the extremes of both. I mean, if you want to say the world is completely lucid, and therefore it's easily uh, discernible what you should do, uh, that's going to crash on the rocks of experience. On the other hand, the world is not just complete chaos and, and nothing means anything. Um, so I would say that kind of underline all of the wisdom literature, if we kind of put it all together, 
that may help us in thinking about preventative medicine is our biblical sages want us to think about the world as, as ordered enough that it makes sense to pursue wise decisions, but not so much that we can uh, begin to think that we can master our lives or our fates. Um, and, and finding that middle ground between pursuing wisdom, but with a kind of open-ended, open-endedness and uh, an awareness that life can come at you in, in, in completely different directions than you expected is kind of critical in, in both of those approaches. Far, you're muted. Kevin, thank you. Jesus would have um, deeply internalized this literature, this Old Testament uh, literature. And then we, we find in Matthew chapter six, in, um, in what has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus telling the folks who are listening to not worry about their bodies and to not worry about tomorrow that uh, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. How do we, how do you make sense of um, the questions people face in terms of being concerned about a future heart attack or a future stroke or a future other sort of complication um, given Jesus's words here? Um, great question. Do, I'll, speak to that. I just want to say one thing about um, Proverbs 26, because Brad's example was so striking. Um, and it's this, that if, if you think of the Bible as a place where you dip in and get something out, and then dip in again and get another thing out, to read those two things together could create a kind of despair, because you wouldn't know uh, when to use one and when to use the other. And then to move back and think, well, I need a systematic answer that will give me the conditions under which I will always know whether to use one or use the other is a further and additional mistake that we continually make in understanding how scripture works and how it works on us. And, and the point would be that, that we are called to become the kinds of people who can make wise decisions and wise judgment. We call it prudential judgment uh, with respect to when you answer a fool and when you don't. So it's a process of becoming the kind of person that is scripturally formed enough to have the wisdom to know when you answer and when you don't. So just a, that's a great example, Brad. Um, and to pivot to, to your question for, um, Again, it's, it's important that we take one step back and not simply just dive into Jesus' words as if they're context-less, uh, which is, of course, how the Sermon on the Mount has been used for so many centuries. It's extracted from the place that you actually find it, which is Matthew's Gospel, and then plopped into some other thing called ethics or how to live or what to do or Jesus teaching on X or Y. Um, but, but actually to read those words well means that we need to read them in the context of Matthew's story, Matthew's narrative, and understand what work they're doing in that gospel story. 
And when you begin to do that is when you begin at least to make a run at some of the questions that, that you just answered for. Um, and so there, there's an important point to make with respect to the very particular phrases that you cited about don't worry and God will provide everything for you. And the point is that in the context of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching this as he's on his way, Jerusalem, where he gets killed. Um, that is to say, what we tend to do is abstract these words from Jesus himself. But actually, as you pay attention to them in the gospel, he's teaching these things in relation not only to how he forms his disciples, but in some relation to his own life. And, and once you notice that, what you begin to get a sense of um, relative to the Sermon on the Mount is it is going to culminate and ultimately be about resurrection from the dead. That is to say, if Jesus says, don't worry about it, God's got it, nothing's going to happen to you, just worry about today, and it's some sort of bourgeois uh, kind of, of advice, uh, it turns out to be false with respect to Jesus himself. He gets to Jerusalem, and he ought to do a lot of worrying because he gets killed off. Well, how then are the words true with respect to Jesus? They're true because God raises him from the dead. He says, ultimately, you need not fear death, nor worry about what you're going to wear, because I'm so committed to your body that I'm committed to it past your death and for eternity. How then does that kind of a eschatological or end time uh, interpretation of those words apply to us as we seek to make decisions about whether to take a statin, for example, or not? Um, again, it, it's, it's not a one-to-one, -one, you know, go here, or here are your five steps for sorting through all decisions you'd ever make about preventative medicine. Um, it, it's more, um, touches more on the fact that the future is inscrutable and that uh, we cannot avoid the calamity that is coming to us, whether it's in the form of disease or disease then death or just unexpected death, but that the posture of trust uh, in God past death is the posture by which we would approach those questions uh, to begin with. And that seems to me the, the real challenge is or maybe it's not the challenge so much to know what it looks like to approach the questions with that posture as it is, I guess, to live into that, discover that. Um, uh, Brad, you know, in that same passage from Matthew 6, Jesus says, uh, who, uh, who of you, he asks a rhetorical question, but it seems that the way he asks, it sounds like the, the answer is, uh, is clear. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And I, I wonder what you make of that in kind of relation to what you described as the lucid wisdom literature or opaque wisdom literature, because people today are hearing the message and um, that at least if they belong to a certain statistical category of persons, that, that medicine offers a strategy that does promise to our, maybe uh, uh, offer at least on average, uh, not just hours, but maybe days or weeks or months or in some cases even years to their lives. So, yeah, how do you, how would you, how would you respond to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Jesus in general, uh, and, and the Sermon on the Mount in particular, um, is how much he resists being kind of pigeonholed, um, you know, on one side of the spectrum or the other. Um, that particular verse seems to me to be a little more on the opaque wisdom side, simply because uh, Jesus is warning that you can't, you know, predict all the things that are going to happen. Uh, but in other places in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he comes down more on the lucid side. So at the end, he says, you know, whoever uh, builds his life, you know, in my words is like a person who builds on the rock. And, you know, in contrast to the person who builds on the sand, the storm's going to come and he's going to be much more secure. And that fits more the kind of like lucid approach. Um, but what I think we see there is whatever approach Jesus adopts, it again is not formulaic. Um, because he typically pivots towards whatever the deeper issue is. So in, in that particular case, it, I mean, it is striking to me that Jesus kind of takes for granted that people want to extend their life. Uh, but he uses that not to argue whether that's right or wrong in this circumstance or that, but to press the deeper issue about our orientation towards the future. So, so in this case, he, he kind of drills down to issue of anxiety. Um, and so I think if we were to pose to Jesus the question of preventative medicine or a particular strategy, uh, I, I expect he would turn the question towards um, why do you want to do that? What would you do with that extra life? How does that extra portion, whatever you think you may gain, um, how does that fit into an overall arc of your life as, as something um, upon which God has a call uh, and that you, are, that you are pursuing in light of, of Christ um, and, and the revelation that he's made about who we are as people? Um, so I think the Sermon on the Mount and that verse in particular are kind of interesting simply because they, like the sages, refuse to be kind of boxed into a, a simple answer to that. Interesting. You, you said that about Jesus turning the question around. It makes me think of that encounter uh, with the two disciples of John, who I believe Andrew was one of them, who started following Jesus. And Jesus turns and says, what are you, what are you looking for? Um, that seems like a helpful thing to ask. What are you looking for in this strategy? What are you, what are you hoping for here? Kevin, you mentioned that if, if Jesus was promising that things would go well, then his promise was proven false by his own, his own life shortly after. Well, in some bourgeois sense, as you said. So the hope is in the resurrection. And yet here we are with these, we're mortal creatures that have these lives that are, God has made good. And Jesus himself spent so much time attending to people who are sick, restoring them to health. Um, so, uh, and yet he was healing them right then as they were sick. He wasn't saying, I'm gonna change the risk. I'm gonna adjust your risk so that you're no longer in a high risk category for a future heart attack or a future, future cancer. Um, how do we make, I mean, how do you, how do the scriptures help us think about the difference between that kind of attention to the, the person who's in front of us and to our own life as it's threatened and this looking ahead into the future and hoping to do something now that 
will affect our future lives? Well, I mean, it's complicated for that. There are so many layers and levels, I think. Um, I'll just begin with this one. It seems to be endemic to the human creature to long for life. I mean, part of our um, predicament is that we are creatures who long for life and are on the way to death. If we didn't long for it so much, the, the on the way to death part wouldn't be such a problem. Uh, and if we didn't have the death part, the longing would not be longing. It would just be an understanding that we get to live. So there's already a kind of tension in, in what we are and, and who we are in the way that uh, God made us and that we emerged after the fall, seems to me. The, the second point would be that, um, you know, uh, the, the idea that we would want to be alive in the future involves a kind of projection of the current self in a future self mode that seems to, to know things that we just can't know. Namely, that that future self, for example, would rather be alive than not. And um, all you have to do to get a basic sense of the truth of that problem is think about people's typical reaction to dementia, profound dementia, uh, where let's say they take a statin and you say, okay, well, good. You know, I'm gonna be able to show you that you're gonna to live to be 95, but at 61, you're gonna start developing dementia. <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of people would begin to reevaluate uh, what their future self uh, would want. And uh, again, I'm, not, I'm leaving aside whether you should or shouldn't, just, just the fact that people react in that way makes the understanding of the future more complicated and, and inscrutable. Third, the words of Jesus would be proven false, not only in relation to his own life, but in relation to the totality of human life. I mean, it just isn't the case that God just cares for us in all the ways that all our needs are always met and that Christians throughout the ages have just flourished when they, when they ask for flourishing. Um, if, if that's what those words mean, then they're false. Um, and that's, that's important register, I think. It's, it's not, it isn't that. It's, and how you would combat that since to read them in the context of the gospel. Um, the, the final thing I would say before I uh, stop this long um, monologue is um, Jesus healing, and this is a complicated thing because of course he's healing. I mean, one, one radical summary of Mark's gospel is Jesus does a bunch of healings and then gets killed off at the end. <laughs> and then there's this sort of passage about resurrection uh, uh, that's sort of cryptic and, and it entices you and, and so forth. But um, yes, he does lots of healings and he's compassionate. The widow of Nain's story in Luke, Jesus is moved with compassion and raises this uh, widow's only son. All of that is absolutely correct, faithful to the gospels and faithful to who Jesus was and is. If you ask the question though, what, what is the purpose of that healing? You know, what's it for? If, if you answer something like, um, to, to make us realize that we're really going to be okay. Uh, I mean, that is a profoundly wrong understanding of the healing. It seems to me that, that part of the healing is to, to give a foretaste of our victory over death. 
um, to, to give a proleptic announcement, an adumbration, something that says, in the end, your body will, in fact, experience calamity, demise, and death. But, but it will ultimately be restored. And that, that's the purpose of the healing. It's, it's not a kind of all imminent purpose. It has goods with it. That's not to be denied. And that's something to be sought by, by patients and doctors, sort of imminent goods. But, but the purpose of the healings is really to, to testify uh, to God's victory over death. Um, which in a way is helping us to train for death. And that's, that's a lot of what Jesus is about in the Gospels and what the Gospel literature is, is trying to help us do, is, is to train well uh, for death. It just, to hear you speak about that, it strikes me that training well for death doesn't obviously and palpably involve a lot of concern to marginally change one's risk of future bad events happening. Um, without presuming, I mean, without, it seems like one of the things you guys have both been clear about is that you can't try to extract from the biblical witness here some kind of rule that, you know, you should take Lipitor if you meet this threshold and you shouldn't if you don't. Um, it just seems like the focus is not so much on, on the future self. Am I, am I, am I misreading that? Well, I mean, for me, right. No, I, I, don't, I don't remember what Lipitor would be in Greek, for example, uh, which is just, just a pathetic joke. But no, it, it, you, don't, you don't find that in there far. Um, but again, it, it's trying to, to, it doesn't give you a yes or a no to that. It, it tries to form you into understanding uh, how to be the kind of person that could adjudicate that decision well. Um, in a situation in which any given patient's life would be ineradicably more complicated than you as a doctor could figure out, even to know whether Lipitor would help them in the end or not. Um, so it, it's, it, yeah, you're not, you're not misreading that. I'm, I'm going to come back to that inscrutability, um, Kevin, but Brad, a couple of verses uh, in, in the paper that you've written, and I should mention to our listeners that if you stay tuned, we, we, we uh, hope that um, uh, a paper by Brad, a paper by Kevin, and uh, by a few other colleagues, papers will, will be published in the next year or so. We'll, when that happens, we'll try to let folks know through everyone who's registered. But um, in your paper, you a couple of verses stood out to me. One is um, Proverbs 9.10, which everyone has heard, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Um, and another is um, that uh, in, in his heart, I believe it's Proverbs 69, in his heart, uh, a man plans his steps, but the Lord, or plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. And um, I guess dipping in and grabbing that verse, we take the latter one, could seem to counsel a kind of um, complete disregard for the future health, one's future health, insofar as you'd think, look, I, I, can, I may make all kinds of plans, but the Lord's going to be the one who determines that. Um, how does, what's my question here, how does someone faithfully take verses like that one and 
be formed by them to be capable of wisely making decisions about things as mundane as Lipitor and, and other such medical strategies. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that verse and, and some of the other ones is critical for this. I, I think that, you know, when we deal on a, on a human plane and we think about things like responsibility and causality, we tend to think of it like a zero sum game. So if I do all the dishes, then you don't do any of them. Or if you do them all, then I do none of them. Or maybe we do 50-50 or something like that. Um, and, and a lot of people, I think, will then think of uh, God in, in a similar kind of way, where um, if, if God is in control of things and, and he's already determined how things are going to go, uh, then there's no role left for me to play, right? But the, the biblical witness resists that kind of either or um, parsing of, of responsibility or causality. Um, so it's not the case that if the Lord establishes your steps, uh, that, that you have no role to play or um, no you know, prudential uh, responsibilities there. Maybe even a better one, I didn't include this in my paper, but in Psalm 127, which is widely considered to be a wisdom psalm, it's one of the two Solomonic psalms in the Psalter. Um, but it begins, uh, unless uh, the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchmen guard it in vain. Um, and what's important about that is that the builders and the watchmen are not relieved of their duties. He's not saying there's no need for watchmen, there's no need for construction workers, because if God wants a house, he'll make it. Um, what he's saying is that the God has ordered things in such a way that those skills, those prudential judgments uh, fit in with God's purposes. And so I think when we come to something like preventative medicine, the Bible is not counseling that, you know, I heard this some during the pandemic where people would say, well, when it's my time, it's my time. So, you know, why be careful? Um, and I, I don't, I think that falls off kind of, kind of the, the extreme end of the, the opaque lucid uh, spectrum there. I think what the Bible counsels is that you do have responsibilities and you should uh, make wise decisions but only insofar as you are fitting them in with an awareness that ultimately uh, your life is in God's hands um, and that uh, God may decide to produce an outcome that you don't expect. Uh, and that's where the, I think the opaque emphasis on integrity and, and non-entitlement to certain outcomes uh, is crucial. Or could I just say one thing? I, I mean, just to put it really bluntly, the Bible isn't trying to make us stupid. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, some, so you, you don't, you know, you're not make stupid decisions. Uh, if you've got a family and you're supposed to provide for them and you've got little kids and you just, oh, who cares if I get hard? You know, I mean, that's a very different thing from, from being 96 and told you ought to go under some operating, uh, some big operation or whatever. I mean, there, so there, again, there are all these differences that we kind of just flatten out when we look at scripture and try to grab this or that verse to tell us what to do. And those differences need to be taken account of. You, um, Kevin, you've, you've said, however, that 
um, the question of taking medicines to prevent a future illness because of the instability of the the fact that we really not only do not know the future, but we don't even know what we would want mm -hmm. to exist um, is a toss up uh, or a matter of luck. Can, can you say more about that? What do you mean? Yeah, um, sure. Well, what I mean is there's, there's no way that you can know what you need to know in order to secure your future. Um, the, that the future really is inscrutable, full stop. Um, and that our sort of slicing of this drug or that drug in relation to the future self is a kind of extreme reduction of human life to a cause and effect scheme that is utterly implausible and, and unknowable and indefensible. Um, you, you, you just don't know enough about all the things that you would need to know about a person's future life to say you can secure your future if you do X or Y. And I, I should say, I'm, I'm talking about cases where we already know we need wisdom, not you have a huge tumor, and if we cut it out, you'll be fine, and if we don't, it'll kill you off. I, you know, those sorts of things to me are, again, the Bible's not trying to make us stupid. Those are easy decisions by and large. You know, again, if the patient is already sick or on X or Y, you know, suppress it, there may be other questions, but those are the situations I'm not, not so much uh, talking about. Um, so I, I'm suggesting that when you're evaluating preventative care questions um, in, in these gray areas, you will not achieve wisdom if you evaluate them on a kind of simple, you can secure your future if you take this. And therefore it does make sense to me to say that it's a reasonable decision uh, for either a doc or a doc-patient relationship, however you come to these decisions to say, I might not take it. Um, I, I, you know, I might, my, my future is not going to be secured by that, and I'd rather not be on 15 different pills just to try to secure my future that I can't know that I'll actually wind up doing. Um, and so that's what I mean by toss-up. I don't mean there's no evidence that X helps Y or anything like that, but just that the, the existential questions are unavoidably complicated. And you could come to wise decisions that would be answer a fool and a wise decision that would be don't answer a fool. I, I when you said the, the scriptures are not intended to make us stupid, it, it occurs to me that I think what often animates folks in their, um, both the physicians who are, or the clinicians that are making recommendations and the people that are um, considering those recommendations and following those preventive medicine strategies is, is in significant part a fear of being stupid. Hmm. Like in a way that that animates um, a parent's worry uh, letting their kid go snow ski or something, or you know, something that has risk or jump out of an airplane. And is what if it happened that when something went wrong, then I would, I, I could never, then I would live with, how did I ever let that happen? And so um, we haven't talked about this exactly, but it, it just, it, uh, it makes me ask, you know, how does the scriptural witness speak to that, that concern that we 
not that we have often we carry that we not fail to do the things that could have been done to prevent some bad thing happening in the future um, for which we would feel stupid and responsible. Do you guys have further thoughts on that? I mean, I, I would just say, tying it to one part of your question I didn't answer um, was, was about the word luck which is a tricky word for Christians. I acknowledge that. But luck, in a way, is a, a, a word that just says uh, we can't um, account for everything. <laughs> and that the attempt to try to account for everything is the attempt to be God, uh, is the attempt to know it all. There's, all. there's only one perspective that sees it all, and that's God's. And the, the, the fact that um, the world and life and any given person's existence is too complicated for us to comprehend seems to me to be again part of what it is to be being whether you're a docker or not i don't know far how you don't be a stupid doc uh and and not and if you are one then maybe you should feel guilty about it <laughs> but but it seems to me that um again you know in these gray areas, which is, I guess, what we need wisdom for, you, you still would be thrown back on, you don't, the, you, you come to a decision with the patient, we're not going to take the statin, I don't know, 10 years later, the person has a heart attack. In those 10 years, innumerable things have happened or not happened to have that person get to that point. And you couldn't have traced the path from that decision to that event uh, without knowing what you need to know uh, if to, you need to, you need to be God to know how to trace that path. That sort of makes you freer. I hope it shouldn't make us careless. You still want to be a good doctor, but I do think it makes us somewhat freer. Yeah, free, freer seems like an important idea here. Yeah. Uh, to me, that if, if we're going to say something from what you guys have described, something that might characterize how people who are formed by the scriptures make use of technology or not, it's that it's done in, in a kind of freedom rather than in a, as, you know, as Jesus said, or as Brad said earlier, an anxiety that we might fail and you know, we have to do everything possible to, to, to not end up in a situation where we will have failed to have done something we might otherwise have done. Brad, you, you know, Kevin mentioned there that God, the, the desire to know everything is, is the desire to be God. Um, you have written about that enigmatic story in the creation account of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And, and um, are there, is there things that we can potentially draw from that story of Adam and Eve's uh, experience and choices that, that uh, might be relevant to, to the question of taking medications to prevent something bad in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, I agree with many of the scholars who, who see the Adam and Eve story as having a, a strong wisdom component to it. Um, when the serpent comes to Adam and, uh, and Eve and, and tries to convince them that God doesn't have their best interest in heart, that if they just eat this fruit, they'll be like gods, they'll be wise, they'll have all the good things in life that they've ever wanted, right? And they'll ride off into the sunset. And, uh, the way that if, if you look at how the serpent kind of approaches Eve about this, 
he, he essentially takes what is a generous act of God in, in creation and placing them in this garden. And he, he turns it around to a, a restriction, right? And, and when he does that, he opens up this space for even then Adam to think, um, may, maybe if I want the best life for me, I need to part ways with what God has said. Um, and so at root, that story is about what happens when people kind of take an autonomous control of their own decision-making process, independent of or over against God, um, with this kind of insidious belief that, um, that I know what's best for me and I'm best able to, to achieve that by doing this, right? And the tragedy of that story is that while they think they're going to get wisdom and they think they're going to be like gods and so forth, they get the exact opposite of that. They get death, right? Um, and so it, it serves as something of a cautionary tale uh, of what happens when, when we try to form our values and our decision-making on our own with no consideration for uh, for. God's will or what God's intentions might be for our life. Um, and I think that is an all too common uh, tendency for humans. I think we are uh, amazing at trying to grasp after more control than we actually have and to, to convince ourselves that we do have more control than we actually have. Um, but if the Bible is right that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, um, then where we should be starting is asking, what are the greater values, uh, conformity to Christ, service in the kingdom, uh, um, serving others that should then kind of relativize and condition how we make all these other decisions like preventative care and so forth. Um, as just one maybe small story that, that kind of brings this to an end. I had a friend who, who died in his early 50s of uh, terminal brain cancer. And, and in, those, uh, in those situations, often the way things get parsed out is you know, quality of life versus quantity of life in terms of treatment options. And what I found so striking is that uh, in those discussions of quality versus quantity, uh, his main concern that he negotiated that kind of balance was um, he wanted to die well. And he wanted to be fully present with his family, his friends, his church. And he wanted to live out a witness all the way up until the moment of death that was consistent with his discipleship all the way through life. And that desire uh, then framed how he weighed various treatment options and, and how that would affect his life, both in terms of extension, but also uh, the effects it would have beyond just quality, how do I feel, but will it hinder me or help me from doing what I think God has called me to do in these few days that I have left? Um, and I think that gets at something profoundly biblical about the way that we are to think of, of any kind of medical decision like preventative medicine. Hmm. Thank you, Brad. Uh, it reminds me of that the, the passage there in Matthew 6 immediately followed with Jesus saying, seek first God's kingdom and righteousness and, and all else will be given to you as well. And seeking first um, frames the, the pursuit of everything else. 
I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and open things up. I've got other questions I can ask, but if you are listening and have a question you'd like to put to Dr. Gregory or Dr. Rowe or both, just use your little reactions button to raise your hand. When you do that, I will see it and will call on you. And when I call on you, I'll ask you to unmute yourself and um, even turn your video on if you're willing to ask the question. If you don't, if you're not able to turn the video, that's okay. But um, or, yeah, go ahead. I, I just wanted to say something while this is starting up that was really important that Brad mentioned that we haven't touched on at all, which is this, that it works for Jesus in relation to the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew, and for Christian life more generally, and for doctors and and in, in any kind of attempt to achieve wisdom, which is that we need people to imitate. Mm -hmm. And um, part of what Jesus is doing in Matthew's Gospel as he's teaching his disciples is then living the Sermon on the Mount himself so that they can follow in, in that path and live it in the way that he did. And, and what, we, what we desperately need in order to be, become wise is to have wise people whom we wish to be like, which for Christians, of course, ultimately means saints. Uh, but, but on down the chain to some of the sinners like us too, we, we, need, um, we, need, we need templates and we need mentors, and we need teachers, uh, and, and we need uh, apprenticeships uh, and things like that. I mean, it occurs to me that's part of what TMC is so important for, but we really, we really need that. And that's a very biblical way of understanding how to get wisdom too. It's not just get the right content, become the right person. It's be in these kinds of connections uh, with, with, with others and you will have a chance at, at becoming wise. That's good. I, I think of, uh, geez, I mentioned the, the story about John the Baptist disciples starting to follow Jesus and, and Jesus turning and asked them, what are you seeking? And they, they give an answer. It's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, where are you staying tonight? And then he, he says, come and see. And says they stayed with him. So there's an example. They begin they begin to figure out what they're seeking. They begin to discover the wisdom of Christ by hanging out with him, uh, walking along with him. Thomas Holcomb, uh, go ahead and unmute if you would and ask your question. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for uh, the, this back and forth. Good dialogue. Um, just in kind of listening to this, my reflections on it um, are that, uh, you know, Jesus healed people, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, one of which was to validate his ministry, you know, as a, as a miracle, a sign of, uh, you know, his divinity, but amongst others uh, was a concern and a um, valuing of human life. Uh, fundamentally, uh, we Christian, Christians, uh, I count myself as a Christian, um, value life because we're made in the image of God and each person has has dignity uh because of that we're made in the imago day um as it concerns therapeutics as a physician um you know the the question of whether or not to give a, a Lipitor to advance or, or to minimize someone's uh cardiovascular risk uh or 
for another example, you know, to prescribe a uh, SSRI to treat someone's depression, those are a little bit different, but you're still using therapeutics uh, for the advancement or for the treatment of someone's disease process. So as a physician, I kind of view that as a, uh, you know, an eye towards making the, the broken person whole again. Uh, because I value them as a human being because they're made in the image of God. I value them for their, their personhood. Uh, and so I want to make them whole. And, and you're not going to fix people uh, completely. I don't think you can really fundamentally you know, fix someone who struggles with severe depression. You can help them and you can help treat them. But ultimately, uh, you know, their healing may or may not be complete this side of heaven. Um, so I guess my, my question, or at least the end of my thoughts, is that you know, I think, uh, you know, you don't read the Bible as a scientific textbook, uh, but you read the Bible, you know, in, in several different genres and literary formats as the way it was written. Um, but I get, I, the, the way I read it is that I, that I get the, um, you know, the, the ethic of treating, treating the human, uh, treating the person, the patient as, you know, the Imago Dei, someone made in the image of God, uh, you know, a child of God that, that Jesus loves. Um, so I was wondering your, your thoughts on that as a, as a reflection. Thank you, Thomas. So Kevin, Brad, um, what, what is, how does the Imago Dei uh, shape our approaches to this issue? And any other comments on that? Yeah, I'll just maybe say something quickly and then maybe Kevin wants to say something. I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think that we have to see people as, or patients as, as holistic beings who um, have biological medical concerns, but uh, those are also part of a whole human life that has a history leading up to that and has uh, a calling and has a certain kind of future that they're aiming for. And so uh, in treating, treating a person as the image of God, um, I think we need to see them as, as part of a, uh, this whole system of uh, a community, a narrative, a, a church, uh, someone whom uh, God is, is directing in certain ways that he may not be directing other per persons. And so asking questions like, um, how will this affect your life and your ability to do the things that you believe you should do or are called to do or whatever, um, is, is maybe something that should be more part of the conversation than simply, uh, oh, you have this uh, condition or this risk factor, take this, um, with no consideration how side effects or any of those other things might factor into um, the, the person's larger call for their life. Um, yeah, I mean, the Imago Dei, I mean, the, the sense that um, the Christians gave it, of course, is, is even more specific. It, it's the, in the New Testament, the image of God is Christ. And so then the, the image in which we are made is the image of Christ, which is, kicks off the whole logic of seeing Christ in every person. Um, so that, that actually emerged in the world with Christianity and is foundational to how we see human beings uh, from start to finish. We've not always been very good at that, but that it's deep in our tradition and, and what we ought to aspire to seems exactly correct. 
the, the struggle and and in, again in relation to to Matthew's gospel and the words that Far quoted for us at the beginning. Um, and, and if you're thinking about, for example, St. Paul's theology in the New Testament, his, his understanding of death as a power, as an intrusive cos cosmological power that needs to be defeated, not just kind of embraced and then hopefully overcome, but actually has to be defeated. Uh, the, the trouble for the physician uh, is that you always lose. Um, and and <laughs> whatever good you do in the meantime is worth doing. And both things are true. And, and that seems to me to be a tension that just attends uh, the work of the physician. It, it seems to me that one, one thread that occurs to me there is that uh, that's more obvious, Gavin, when you're attending to someone who's sick, whose body is in fact mm -hmm. concretely broken in a way that's tangible. Um, often, and this connects to Brad's point about questioning how a particular strategy fits the whole of a person's life and their commitments and their vocation and their obligations to others and the needs of their community and so on, is it's not obvious, let's, let's say if you're prescribing Lipitor, often that someone is broken so much as that they represent, you know, a statistical probability on a population level of that there will be breaking in the future. Um, so it, uh, so it seems less obvious to me sometimes that what we're doing is, is good uh, uh, insofar as there's less clarity that we're repairing something that's broken. Well, let me turn with that, with that to Mary Landis. Uh, Mary Landis, uh, would you unmute and ask your question? Sure, um, thank you both so much for being here today. Um, I found this conversation to be really helpful for me in thinking about a lot of these issues. Um, but I'm wondering a little bit at, about preventative medicine and access and to preventative medicine. So being able to participate at all in preventative medicine measures assumes that a person has access to good doctors, that they go to the doctor often, that they are able to think carefully about their health, et cetera. So for those who don't have that level of access or privilege, how should we think about the general human movement towards death for them. Um, it, it seems like because, or if, if they have no access to preventative medicine that their death might be totally unjust. And um, in those cases would prepare, preparing for death be directly opposed to the flourishing life? Great question, um, Kevin, Brad. Well, it's hard for me to answer without a sidetrack because the, the, the whole Sermon on the Mount begins with a little word, therefore, which tells you as a reader to look back and see what comes before. And what comes before is the teaching about uh, money and about serving, serving God and money and how um, those things are impossible to serve um, together. And so part of what is going through my mind, Mary Landis, at the moment is this question about um, preventative medicine, uh, the economic drivers of that uh, whole 
uh, industry, if you will, and um, the financial calculations that go with which patients are worth investing in and, and all that kind of thing. And I'm just not really sure that, that we, as in me, uh, or we, as in those of us who are trying to think about these things, have a great answer at the moment yet. Um, someone's death being unjust is, is a complicated uh, terminology for me. I can see why you'd use it, but it, it's in Paul's way of thinking, it's all just and all unjust at the same time. Uh, but, I, but I get what you mean about the economics and access. Those are deep and real questions and, and need a lot more attention. Brad, anything you'd say to add to that? I, mean, I agree with what Kevin said. I guess the only thing I would add is that um, that, that is a, a very real concern and it, and it highlight, highlights how much uh, our decisions in terms of medical care are never just individualistic, though we like to think that they are, um, particularly in America, but that they have uh, wide, wide ranging uh, impacts on those close and far from us. Um, uh, one of my colleagues highlighted the fact that, um, you know, certain uh, preventative measures in terms of the coronavirus, one of the, the kind of, I guess, downstream consequences of that is that it slowed supply lines. Uh, and there were um, countries that, uh, in various parts of the world who then suffered from food shortages, right? So the, the ability for some of these decisions to cascade to other, um, uh, other effects makes the decision-making process even more complicated. And I think without having a, a ready-made solution, just calls us back to the need for, for wisdom and, and thinking more broadly than just what is the best for me uh, and what I can afford right now. Um, but I, I'm not sure I can do better than that because it, it is a deep-rooted problem. It is a deep-rooted problem. It does seem obvious that uh, concern about one's own future good in um, grasping at trying to remain alive is quite different from being deeply concerned about one's neighbors who may be in a, uh, and in many cases are in a, a, a context in which because of a variety of injustices, they don't, uh, they're put at unusual uh, risk of harms or already suffering harms. Um, we've come to the end of our seminar. I wanna thank Dr. Gregory and Dr. Rowe um, for joining us. Thank you both. Um, this is, it's been a rich discussion. I thank all of you guys who joined us as participants and listeners. Um, and want to remind you that our next seminar on March 10th, uh, will, will have with us Father Eddie Eustish, uh, a priest in, who will speak on the title, An Explanatory Model of Illness and Religion in Haiti from a spiritual approach to a holistic one for healing. So we'd love to have you guys join us again. Um, again, look for these papers to come out some point in the coming months. Lord willing, the future's inscrutable, so we can't say exactly when. But thank you all again for joining us and have a great evening.